Change sometimes happens with just a few dedicated people or groups that come together because ultimately these decisions need attention from the leadership to actually drive forward and get through obstacles and conflict points. And so hopefully we're at the right moment in time that we can actually get these global treaties over the finish line because we certainly need them. The time is not on our side. Consider this. Protecting 90% of our livable space on Earth comes down to a few hundred people assembled in conference rooms around the world. In the past year, we've had a number of high-level talks that could upend global fishing as we know it. Today, we go inside those talks to see whether this could actually happen. Welcome to The Catch, a special six-part series by Foreign Policy in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation, where we're tracing squid from ocean to plate. I'm Bruxandra Guidi. This is now part five, game-changing diplomacy. In our last episode, we heard from inspectors and NGOs working hard to monitor and stop fishing vessels engaged in IUU, or illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. IUU can mean a lot of things, from blatant criminal activity to unsustainable fishing. It's not always easy to figure out who the good guys and the bad guys are, since the rules for who can do what, where, are woefully insufficient, especially out in the high seas. The big challenge is trying to create meaningful laws for our shared international waters. It's a complex, multilateral problem. So that's why on this episode we're heading to the United Nations. This year, delegates are meeting to negotiate a treaty that would give more protections to marine life. It's been 20 years in the making. Time and time again, negotiators have been missing deadlines. The last one in 2020 was delayed by COVID. It's a chilly March day in Manhattan. Snow flurries mix with slushy rain in the air. There's not much foot traffic. A handful of people wait in line to go through the UN security. And while it would be great to be a fly on the wall, these talks are close to the public. So we've sent our producer Rosie Julin to the next best thing, the Millennium Hotel across the street, where stakeholders are gathering to monitor what's happening at the high-level UN talks. Hi, lovely to see you. That's Lisa Spear. She's a marine scientist with the National Resource Defense Council, and she seems to know everyone here. Hello, hello, how are you? Hi. I'm not going to interview am I? She's greeting Duncan Curry. He's a lawyer who specializes in environmental and maritime law. These two have known each other for close to two decades now. They first worked together to stop bottom trawling, a destructive fishing technique that involves dragging huge weighted nets across the seafloor. I had a lot less gray hair and wrinkles when we started this process. <laughs> Lisa exudes the warmth of your favorite aunt. Despite all the setbacks she's faced over the years, she's filled with boundless energy. And today, she's particularly upbeat because, across the street from where she is, the delegates representing roughly 120 countries are hashing out what could be a landmark agreement governing the world's oceans. Over here at the Millennium Hotel, it's a very different vibe. Walking through the high-end lobby feels a bit glamorous. There's a checkerboard tile floor and mirror panels surrounding the reception area. 
And Lisa's right at home. It seems like every two steps, she's being enthusiastically greeted by a new person. Oh my goodness. How are you? Oh, I'm so glad. So Welcome to New York. Thank you. So, so great. But the real action is up on the 28th floor. It looks like any other. Standard industrial carpet, nondescript wallpaper. It's pretty quiet here, except for the conference room at the end of the hallway. There, about a dozen or so ocean experts mill about. Some gather around the laptop. They're watching a live stream of the talks. Um, a very good morning to everyone here in CR4. I'm not really sure what angle people see um, for those dialing in from outside. But to those of us who are joining us digitally, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. So it's kind of a watch party where this group of experts is relaying updates back to their NGOs, but they also serve as advisors to the delegates inside the meetings. The delegates are negotiating something known as the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction Treaty, or BBNJ, more commonly known as the High Seas Treaty. This is the time to show leadership in brokering mutually acceptable solutions. This way, the conference can send to the world a strong signal that multilateralism remains relevant. The treaty aims to finally put in place rules for what happens outside of a country's territorial waters. These exclusive economic zones, or EEZs, you can probably tell that fish people love acronyms. These EEZs cover an area 200 miles from the shore. And so for squid that obviously swim in and out of these waters, this would mark the first time the species gets broader protections. Lisa says this would be a big deal. We're finding that human activities are resulting in depleted fisheries. And these are fisheries that billions of people rely on for food, for basic economic survival, for cultural sustenance. The high seas make up two-thirds of the world's oceans and almost half of the planet. It's an area that's rich in untapped resources, and prospectors are eager to exploit it. And it is managed right now the way we managed the West in the 1850s. The existing regime is not sufficient to adequately protect marine biodiversity from the various impacts of fishing, shipping, seabed mining, ocean noise, and over all of those things looms, of course, climate change. It's been a slog to get to this point. To pass a treaty, you need a majority of countries to agree. And that's the problem. There are many who would prefer to see the status quo, the weak system of regulation, people out there who are busy exploiting it. And the challenge ahead is to make sure that this treaty results in meaningful change on the water. And that is a big order. And we're not there yet. So how do we get there? Many of the appeals call for more conservation. And Lisa has come to New York armed with scientific evidence on why the seas need further protection. Just like a sick person is less able to deal with surgery than a healthy person, a sick ocean is less able to deal with the impacts of climate change than a healthy ocean. And so the best way to help the ocean is to reduce emissions, but also to reduce 
the stressors that are currently out there that are degrading the health and resilience of our ocean, including fishing, shipping, seabed mining, pollution, plastics, the list goes on and on. We humans are an opportunistic species. It's simply not enough to say it's in our own best interest to curb potentially lucrative practices. So the experts here on the 20th floor of the Millennium Hotel are also helping delegates better understand the economic benefits of conservation and cooperation. Protecting the oceans means protecting the global fishing trade as a whole. As of 2018, it's been valued at $164 billion. With so much on the line, the world needs more robust coordination to keep things in check. Squid, for example, need laws that can protect their stock across boundaries. Really, it is a global problem. That's Duncan Curry. We met him earlier in the lobby. He's an environmental and maritime lawyer and a member of the High Seas Alliance Steering Committee. The, um, the overfishing and the depletion of squid is not a regional problem. And frankly, I don't believe there can be a, an effective regional solution. Um, squid go up and down in, in the deeper parts of the ocean. It's a drum he's been beating for years. Like Lisa Spear, Duncan Curry is also a regular at these high seas talks. He hasn't missed one since 2008. And he's been watching the depletion of fishing stocks from big predatory fish like tuna and sea bass down the food chain to squid. So the time is now to put into place procedures and processes to make sure that we don't continually have a, uh, a race to the bottom effectively or a race to as many fish as you can before someone else does. Finally, after 20 years of meetings, the time may just be right. Lisa Spear and Duncan Curry say there's optimism that a treaty can be agreed to by this August. And there's more good news. The High Seas Treaty isn't the only major discussion taking place this year. The second treaty that's being discussed is the Convention on Biological Diversity. And the science indicates that we need to protect at least 30% of the world's oceans in highly and fully protected marine reserves. This is Matt Rand. Senior Director of Ocean Habitat Protection at the Pew Charitable Trust. Matt's a top oceans expert. And for years, he's been on the front lines to create marine protected areas, like in Hawaii in 2016. The largest marine protected area on the planet is officially in Hawaiian waters. We hope that it's an example uh, for the future of all leaders of all the worlds of why it's so important to protect. I was world. lucky enough to work with and support um, local Hawaiians that led the effort to try to expand this really important area for them spiritually, culturally. Um, but also, you know, from a biodiversity perspective. And leaders from the Native Hawaiian community were really the, the courageous leaders that drove forward. And having President Obama honor their request to protect that area, give them more of a role in co-management of that area, it was a, it was a great honor. The health of our planet's oceans determine in large part the health of our own bodies and the health of our economies. And while it is our ocean's contours that shape our coastlines, it is what we decide and do here that will shape our ocean's future. More recently, Matt was part of the team that helped push Ecuador to expand the boundaries of the Galapagos Marine Reserve. 
Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lasso signed it into law this past January. The zone aims to protect critically endangered species, including turtles and sharks. The protected reserve was the culmination of three years of work in negotiating with various stakeholders, like local fishers, the tourism industry, and industrial fishermen. But Rand says the most important element of all of this was leadership. In the instance of Ecuador, I think there's a courageous, visionary, environmental uh, minister who drove forward. He, uh, you know, I say conservation takes courage. It's never easy to try to advance conservation efforts. There are always those out there that are that are concerned and nervous about it and, and block conservation. But the minister, I think, did an exceptional job of trying to address all of the concerns. Change sometimes happens with just a few dedicated people or groups that, that come together. Such good news would be bolstered by a second big international treaty that would further protect ocean ecosystems. It'll be negotiated at the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is set to take place later this year in China. RAND sees a similar momentum taking place in Geneva, Switzerland, home of the World Trade Organization, or WTO. And that brings us to International Treaty Number 3. The WTO is made up of 164 member states, representing nearly all of global trade. Countries send representatives to WTO negotiations to work out the rules for trade and also the penalties for violating those rules. So because these treaties have teeth, there's greater incentive for compliance. When it comes to global fishing, a big sticking point has been the issue of state subsidies for the fishing industry. There are subsidies that are given for fishing companies, such as, you know, fuel credits uh, that reduces the cost of fishing so that it's not actually um, competitive with the cost of doing it. They're actually subsidized to go out and ultimately creates overfishing in the world's oceans. And it's a substantial of billions of dollars of money go into subsidies that ultimately are negative to the conservation of our global fisheries. And over the years, the amount of money being pumped into subsidizing global fishing has ballooned. Taxpayer money is $35 billion a year. This is Rashid Sumaila, an expert in fishery economics based at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Yes, so... Number one, the subsidies are substantial. Our estimate put the amount a year that our governments around the world, coastal countries, give to the fishing sector. Taxpayer money is $35 billion a year. All right? And this is an industry that generates about $100 billion a year. So you have 30% at least of their total revenue is subsidies. This is huge, right? And since commercial fishers in particular fish for profit, this artificially makes them go home with big profit, artificial profit. And that means they fish even when they lose money because we fund them to do this. Let's unpack this. An industrial fishing vessel can lose money on its catch but still come out ahead, all because of subsidies. Getting places like China, which is the number one subsidizer, or the EU, which is number two, to stop giving their fishing fleets an unfair advantage has been really tough. Nobody wants to lose out on market share, and nobody wants to give their competitors an edge. 
It's a stalemate that's gone on for decades. At the end of the day, we need the world together to really move the needle enough, significantly enough. We started in 2001 on this issue. Now we're in 2022. So it's been almost 21 years now in these negotiations. So we're trying to get it done now. This is Santiago Wills. He's Colombia's ambassador to the WTO, and he was tapped to lead these negotiations. Santiago is perhaps an unlikely choice to be leading these talks in Geneva. He's 37 years old, which means he was still in grade school when talks about curbing subsidies first began. But he's a charismatic negotiator, and he's making headway by hammering home one unassailable fact. Put a stop in the depletion of the oceans. Because if we don't do that right now, in 10, 15 years, we won't have fish to fish. And this doesn't mean just the industry as such. It means the livelihoods of the people. It means artisanal fishers not having any uh, way of, of, uh, of subsistence like they've, they've been doing in, in the past years. So this is really about the fish, but it's also really about the people. Santiago says the focus on sustainability instead of markets has really changed the conversation. And we're always, the negotiators are used to talk about uh, trade distortions, economic impact, market distortions, not about sustainability. So how do we measure the impact on sustainability of one subsidy? How do we prohibit certain types of subsidies that would be harmful to sustainability? In other words, Santiago's breakthrough argument isn't that subsidies shouldn't exist. It's that they should be evaluated on whether they lead to overfishing. It shouldn't be about short-term profits, but the long-term efforts to protect marine ecosystems. Santiago has seen some progress. Much of his work now is figuring out how trade and conservation can live side by side. We first talked back in May, before a WTO meeting, and he told me how paying attention to science isn't usually on the radar of those working in financial matters. We have the need to go a bit into elements that are usually not part of the WTO, like sustainability, and that's precisely one of the, of the difficulties we've had, because it's, it's certainly very new for trade negotiators. The WTO hasn't traditionally measured the health of oceans, but now it'll be vital to better manage subsidies. So Santiago's having to come up with a new system of data collection. This means partnering with entities like the Food and Agricultural Organization or the United Nations to tap into their data on the health of marine ecosystems. We're also creating that link with those other organizations so that we, have, we can have close cooperation with them. And that link proved to be a major turning point. I followed up with Santiago in late June when he had some good news to report. They finally made it to an agreement. It was really, truly unbelievable. It, it's my view that there are a few times, if any, in one's career and in one's life, actually, where you have the opportunity to make a difference, a positive contribution to the world. And throughout these past two years that I've been chairing the negotiations, two and a half years that I've been chairing these negotiations, I felt that I had been granted this opportunity. And of course, I was not going to let it slip away. It was definitely not an easy task. It required a lot of effort. But being absolutely convinced that what we were trying to do was to make a positive and needed change for the ocean, for the fish, for the communities that depend on the fish for their livelihoods. And on top of that, that it would be a huge achievement for the WTO. All of this just created an unbeatable determination to get it done. The agreement signed by the WTO doesn't accomplish everything. 
Some are frustrated that after 20-plus years of negotiations, the deal doesn't get rid of all harmful subsidies. But it does move things forward in a major way. We're talking about a multilateral agreement of 164 WTO members. So we're actually setting a new, very high standard to curb harmful fisheries subsidies. First and foremost, implementing this agreement will bring a great positive change to fisheries around the world. With this agreement, we're aiming at curbing around 22 billion US dollars of subsidies granted every year that have been considered to be harmful fisheries subsidies. But in my view, it's not just about eliminating those subsidies. But what this could do is to free up that amount of public money, of government support, that now can be redirected into creating sustainable fisheries practices, into supporting actually the actual sustainable fishing. Think about it. The WTO has agreed to limit fishery subsidies for the very first time. So now we're back at the UN where our episode began. In the UN, it can make treaties and declarations, but it doesn't have an enforcement mechanism like the WTO does. So now, through these various high-level talks, we're starting to see the symbiotic relationships forming. Whether they're talking about creating new marine protected areas or reining in subsidies or drafting new laws to curb illegal fishing in the high seas. Now we're seeing all these big-time players going after the same thing, protecting the world's oceans. This is unprecedented. I was completely ecstatic when ministers adopted the agreement. I was thrilled. But I must confess that I was also quite relieved We delivered for sustainability, and we delivered for the WTO. And there's another area which shows signs of improvement. We'll get to that in our next episode of The Catch. The final steps of the squid journey. How it ends up in our local markets, and yes, your plates. We'll hear what governments in the U.S. and Asia are doing to change the ways we fish and think about what we eat. When we hear and read about these awful practices, including literally slavery, murder, and other things on the high seas, it's important for every American to know that we are, to some degree, enabling it and subsidizing it with our market. And we'll get to what it is that we can do to demand more from the supermarkets and restaurants we frequent. 10, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have had the confidence to say, eat more seafood, just across the board, because that hard work hadn't been done in the supply chain to create sustainable pathways. But now I believe it's it's there. Uh, again, with the caveat, there's, there's a lot of work left to be done. That's next week on The Catch. And that's it for part five of The Catch. Our show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation. Our production team includes Rosie Julen, Rob Sachs, Maria Jimena Aragon, Jimena Ledgar, and Anisa Peseshki. Special thanks to my co-reporter, Simeon Tegel, based in Lima. A big thanks to Teresa Ish, Renu Mittal, and Mark Shields from the Walton Family Foundation for their assistance. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or head over to foreignpolicy.com where you can listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. The Catch is made possible in part by support for foreign policy readers. If you're interested in smart geopolitical news and analysis from Washington and around the world, please consider subscribing. 
The Catch listeners can get a 15% discount on their first month or year of access by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code SQUID, S-Q-U-I-D, at checkout. Thanks for listening. I'm Bruxandra Guidi. See you next week.